It's really about figuring out what you want most, what your core values are, being able to articulate those. We all have them. And understanding like what you do well, what you want, what are non-negotiable, because to me, that's the beginning of everything. And then going figure out how you're going to get it and how you're going to perform at, at a high level. Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance. Scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Robert Glazer. Robert is an entrepreneur, founder of Acceleration Partners and best-selling author of Elevate, He's also the author of an absolutely fantastic weekly newsletter, Friday Forward, which we talk about the genesis of that in his business, wanting to write a letter to his employees every week. And it was important to him because they've built their business remote from day one. So it's based around some city hubs, but everybody works remotely. So we talk about the cultural implications of that. We talk about the genesis of the book and the podcast Elevate, and we talk about some of the other things that he's implemented inside his organization culturally and personally to drive his own high performance as a business and as an entrepreneur. Fantastic, wide-ranging conversation and some great recommendations for podcasts and books at the end. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, everyone. I'm uh, Robert Glazer. I am the founder uh, and CEO of Acceleration Partners. And I'm author, also the author of a book called Elevate and a book called uh, Performance Partnerships. And uh, I'm excited to uh, join today. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. So what does Acceleration Partners do? We are a partner marketing agency. So we help brands with a form of marketing called, called affiliate marketing. It's sort of kind of now being called partner marketing more generally, but establish uh, partnerships with hundreds of thousands of other companies who um, market on their behalf. Everything is tracked and then they are only paid on a performance basis. So in these programs, clients pay their marketing expense after they get the sale or the lead or the outcome that they want. So it's a very attractive form of marketing. And in the sort of direct-to-consumer world and the focus on performance, we're seeing a big shift from people paying for clicks or impressions to paying for outcomes. Do you manage, it's your platform or are you managing the spend? We are managing the spend. When you think of it, it's like a program. So we talk about managing program. It could have 500 or 5,000 partners in it. And so there's a lot of communication and needs and things they're looking for. We work in conjunction with a platform. They're partner marketing platforms and affiliate networks. It'd be the same way as if you had like search and you're working with Google or social, you're working with Facebook, you still have an agency that would manage that platform and know how to manage that campaign for you. So we manage the campaign instead of X and O's though, it's actually a lot of relationships. So it could be again, hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of partners who are 
asking for different things, needing things, you know, working on promotions with them, um, going back and forth. So that's a lot of the need of an agency is to just handle that that day to day with all of these kind of digital marketing partners. And the brands that you work with, they just have no ability to do that in house because you you can you're recruiting the partners for them and then managing the partners for them. Yeah, we're, we're recruiting them. They, they typically don't have the ability to do in-house. There, it, it, there's not a lot of training. If they can get one or two in-house people, that's great. But there's some of the global programs we're running need five or 10 speaking different languages and needing to know how to use that platform and being an expert in that platform. So generally, if you think about you know, the company's good at what the company does. Being a expert in a partner marketing platform and knowing where to find external, you know, develop related, like it's a very external facing role. It's not something that a lot of companies have have been able to or wanted to build big house team in house teams. They tend to build small teams in house and then look to kind of the day to day support from people who are really specialists in the industry. And how big's how big's the business now? Uh, about one hundred and seventy five people. Uh-huh. And you're U.S. predominantly? Uh, we are U.S. predominantly. Uh, however, I think we're now, we're above about 20 in the U.K. And we have about 10 across um, uh, Australia and Singapore. Okay. And business good? Uh, business has been good. Uh, I think right now is a pretty high degree of uncertainty for a lot of people that they're trying to figure out. And um, so, you know, we're preparing for some... As I say, dislocations with our customers and surprises. And, you know, I think the interesting thing about we were talking about this, about the sort of virus thing is you have three pieces. You have actual health risk. You have sort of disruption and inconvenience. But I think if you add up enough disruption and inconvenience, it actually starts to create real economic <laughs> risk. Um, and, and so that's what we're, we're watching out carefully for right now. There's no way tourism and travel being down 90% in some companies does not start to have a you know a ripple effect. I'm in the south coast of England and get the train up to London from Southampton Airport. And yesterday, the regional airline Flybe, which is 95% of the flights in and out of Southampton are Flybe. So there I was next to a completely quiet airport yesterday. Yeah, I mean, Italy said it's worse than 9-11. And look, hopefully it's short term, right? Because it's not it's not economic driven as much as it is fear driven. But a lot of the businesses can't survive that. And then you have people that supply those businesses and you know everything isn't connected. So I, I don't think there's any way that the global economy is not in at least a short term recession right now once we you know get through the data in, in a couple months. Yeah, people just postponing things. And it's the contagion of postponement that just has the real impact. Yeah, look, these kind of, you know, every conference that I've been invited to or speaking at has been postponed. And again, that's not the end of the world, but that's revenue, you know, from the nose vendor. I mean, there's, there's, there's a ripple effect of, of all that. Yeah. So are you, you're, you, are, can all of your team work from home remotely? Yeah, we, we have a huge advantage here in that we are, we are actually, we are all remote to begin with. Uh, we operate around uh, hub cities, but we've been doing this for a long time. We've won all these best places to work awards as a remote culture and we have a lot of systems in place so we're getting some calls and answering some questions about like what are our best practices to do that and so what are those best practices to do that uh, i just wrote an article on this today so i so i think th three of them that i've shared one which is, the first is like keep a routine in terms of keep the meetings keep the calls uh keep a routine schedule the stuff you want to do sometimes that freedom and flexibility is actually can create sort of issues for people. The other is to create some physical space, like 
pick a place where you're going to work, have it be different, shut down the phone, decide when you're moving from work to, I, I, I think people do much better when they have sort of a brain blood barrier from, you know, where do I work at home to where am I home at home? And then the third is, which, you know, we're doing is just, we just make everything video by default. So I think if you're not to get like every five minute call, we are default video on everything. Uh, I think there's, I always say like if in person's a 10 and phone's a three, I think video is like a seven. I mean, you, you can see people's reaction. You, it's just much, much more, more human. So I, I think a lot of, look, it's been increasing a lot, but we still do some of these video calls with clients or whatever. And they, all of a sudden they're ducking or like, you know, moving out of the way the first time. And we're like, we're, we're so used to it. But then after a couple of calls, they get used to it. But I, I, I mean, I've been on calls or pitches where someone's on the phone and we're on video and I can see that they've lost that person two minutes before they can see it. So I think those are the three, you know, video, um, keep a routine and a schedule. Don't don't change that, uh, you know, and, and, and then also kind of define your physical boundaries within your home workspace. What do you do in terms of the because one of the big differences working remotely versus working in the office is. You know, if you're in work, people just turn up and will banter with each other, you know, or they'll talk shite while they're getting a cup of coffee. Yeah. And, and there's a real pro and a con to that, right? I, I think the 30, 37 Signal guys in Basecamp have written a lot on, on REM work. And like, you know, if you're in that good, like REM work phase where two hours where you're getting 80% of your work done for a day, another person just wants to come bother you. That's very disruptive. And I think it takes like 15 minutes or something to get back into it. So, you know, we do a lot of things to maintain the social fabric, but we actually, I think our people get more undisturbed working time than they would in a regular environment. And does it mean that you hire different types of people, do you think? Yeah. So so what's interesting is it's not necessarily all people that have, look, from a behavioral standpoint, people that have done it and thrived in it, like that's one checkbox. But we're not necessarily getting people who are looking for remote work, maybe their first time. So we've, we've learned to screen for the things that would make someone thrive in that environment. And our core values are very aligned to the type of person who would work well in remote work. So I always say like, look, we've, we've spent a lot of time and energy over the last 13 years figuring out the 1% of people who would thrive in our version of this, it's not, it's not for everyone. Most of those people really value the flexibility in some way. They have family, they have kids, they live somewhere where it's a long commute. They're a competitive athlete. They like to travel. Like that's a really important part of the equation for them. If they'd rather be in the office and they're kind of a raging extrovert, then we're probably not the right choice for them. But you're, you're using, are you then using remote? Cause some of those things that you picked up there, you're using remote to attract top talent that would otherwise not be available to you in, in a way that that's your competitive advantage as a business? Yeah. And it's also the type, it, it just sort of fits our person who, who likes to work hard, get their stuff done, results oriented, but they have other things that are important to them outside of work, which we actually think is, is important, right? So they have a pet, they love training for marathons or, or, or whatever it is. So, so, to, so there's this holistic sort of set of circumstances that that is in, important to them. What's interesting is when we opened in the UK about three years ago, our, our team there and our MD there was very worried about this. And so we said, okay, get a, well, we're not signing leases because we don't do that. So get a flex workspace. You can encourage everyone to come in. And, you know, they were very worried about the perception. And so we started doing that. And within a year, they were coming into town once a week. I mean, people in, in London, as you know, I mean, they have long commutes. They're living further and further out. 
And they started to get used to it. And they were like, look, we don't have to be in there. Every, you know, they, they come in, they use that space, but everyone's adjusted. And actually, there's been a pretty big wave in the last couple of years, I think, of it going from no one working from home in London to firms like the, with the real estate out of control. My, my friend works for kind of an old school big bank, and they're like encouraging people to work from home now rather than take more space in central London. Yes. Well, one of my clients is very remote, you know, remote by default, video, every call video by default. And they're just thinking about the challenge of doubling their workforce in, you know, the next few years. And how, so how do you recruit? Do you recruit face-to-face or do you just recruit over video? So we recruit face-to-face. We think that's really important. That's part of our hub strategy. So even though people are at home, we hire around specific cities because we will do events in those cities. Our leadership team will come meet with everyone in those cities and we're able to literally touch the whole organization in a week, visiting all of the hub cities. And then we can do final round interviews. We do really think that, I think there are things that you pick up on social emotional cues, you know, having a meal, breaking bread, the in-person that are really important. And that that in-person interview has been the defining point for some of the people we've said no to. Uh You referenced your core values as the, your remote work fits with your core values. What, what are they? Uh, Own it embrace relationships and excel and improve. So own it and excel and improve. uh, I'm sorry, own it and embrace relationships form this concept of really interdependence, which I would define as our core people, like people who are bold will act, but they generally believe that they're better as part of a team. We don't have any kind of brilliant jerks. But, you know, in this type of environment, you can't be a sort of slow consensus builder, need to talk everything through, you got to be willing to act and make decisions. So again, my definition of a great culture is one that's just consistent. Like I'm not saying that that's a bad quality. I'm just saying that's a quality that probably doesn't work very well in our environment. And if if you're a sort of consensus builder, need to talk everything through with everyone, like we're probably not the right company for you. Uh And what's your, uh, what's the thing that you are obsessed about outside of work that made you build a business that you could spend time on it? I'm obsessed with people sort of uh, living up to their ability, both inside and outside work. That's become a universal thing for me. I think one of the biggest shames is not living up to your own potential or, or capacity. And so that's, that's really like the strategy, both behind the things I do outside of work and the leadership and development that I do inside of work. So a lot of the stuff I do, you know, charity and social services really is around youth and potential and, you know, making sure that, you know, I think that everyone has the best shot that they can to be successful. And so why youth? What took you down that charitable route? A lot of people's purpose comes from their own experience and our, and our pain. I think in my case, I, I, uh, I didn't really fit into the normal system. I was very creative, entrepreneurial. It's a very familiar story, right? So in school, I, I was not so interested in the standardized tests and the, you know, sit down and, and I just, no one ever really kind of recognized that. I mean, in the traditional system, it's you're usually stop messing around, you know, sit down, color in the lines. I, I didn't really get into learning. And I, and I think that I, I live well below, you know, my potential. And it wasn't until I realized that all of the things that actually I was good at, the strengths and weaknesses were, were aligned. And so that's a personal mission for me. I also think you can make a big difference at that stage in someone's life in terms of change and, and opportunity, I did have a lot of opportunity. Like I grew up in a uh, upper middle-class family. Um, you know, I didn't lack or want or need for anything, but I still had struggles. I think there are other people that just really like, 
the opportunity or the assistance or get a chance can just make a huge difference for them. Fab. And you're, uh, you're best known, I guess, for your, your now world famous email. Yes. Maybe most widely known. Yeah. Yeah. So how did, how did that start? And then I guess there was a point where you decided to carry on and ride the wave, or you could have just said, Oh no, this is, this is embarrassing. I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah. And I, and I can tell you even where that point, I mean, I remember, I remember that day. Um, so I had gone to a pretty intensive leadership program. I started figuring out my core values. One of the things that came out of that was really improving your morning routine, reading, ideally something positive, writing, getting exercise, just taking time to think. So as part of that, we were given some books, kind of positive stuff to read. And it just wasn't my, it was a little rainbow and unicorny. It wasn't my, my thing. So I decided to combine the things and I, and, and I do some writing and I had some stories and stuff that people sent me. I said, you know what? We had 40 people, we're, we're remote, we're not in the same place. I'll, I'll sort of write a note. I think I called it Friday Inspiration. And it was, it was a story about improvement, getting better, perspective. The, the one thing about my style in this writing, it is, it is not rainbows and unicorns. Like sometimes it's intentionally a little making people uncomfortable because I think that's how you sort of reevaluate something. And so I started sending these around and I, I wasn't sure if anyone was really even reading them. And I started to get feedback from my team that, they really liked them and they were doing it and they were kind of, you know, following some of the stuff that I had talked about. I was like seeing some positive improvement within the company. I was at a, a, a entrepreneurs organization event with some other CEOs and I, we were sharing best practices. And I said, you know, I've been writing this email to my team and uh, I'm getting some good feedback. I'll, I'll, I'll send you it if you want to see it. They said, uh, yeah, great. And so after that event, I sent it to about three or four of them. One started his own the other three said, like a good entrepreneur, like, you know, this is great. We'll just send this to our team. And I had <laughs> also been getting comments from people on my team saying, thanks. I, I love this. I forwarded it to my husband. He shared it with his company. I, I was having a hard time managing some of the just BCCs at that point. So I just set it up as a newsletter template so people could sign up. But I just made it like as much as it look, could look like a regular uh, email. I took a couple hundred friends and family and colleagues and I dumped them on the list and I waited for like the what the bleep is this and take me off or otherwise. But I started getting the same responses, which was, thanks, I love this, I've shared it. And one of those people wrote an article on Inc about how it was the only thing he, he read every week. And, and, and then 2000 people signed up that week and it just started to snowball. Oh, fantastic. And did you then, at the point where the focus was obviously external, not in her, internal, deliberately change what you wrote about? No, so it was actually never about our company, right? I was writing it just as a thought in in, in general. So I, I never had to change anything. In fact, I had a lot of pressure from marketing or otherwise like, hey, why don't you make this about the company or market the company? And I was like, look, I it's working because I'm creating value for people. So my focus is going to be on creating value. And, and I can hope that the universe rewards me in some way. But I find that like people try to, you know, do the inverse of, figure out what's in it for them. And I, I just think if you create value for others, you you inevitably get value back. You just don't know how. So I actually got more criticism, I think, internally saying like, why are you sending out this thing, spending all this time on this thing that's not promoting or talking about our business? It's funny. I was with uh, I was with somebody this week and I was suggesting to the CEO this week that he should be sending a, an email to his employees each week. Or, for, or, or, or forward one. Well, yeah, yeah, either. But, you know, I was suggesting that, you know, because they are, they've got a diverse workforce that now is the time to 
be communicating each week about something. And then the conversation were, well, is it, you know, is it every two weeks? Is it every week? Is every month okay? What's your, what's your, you know, you went for a week. Why don't you go for a week? You know, it kind of became a keystone habit for me, right? It was something I wanted to do, the writing and thinking and pot, like it actually just encouraged all of those things. So I, I, to me, like do whatever it is that you can do well and keep it consistent. To me, it was one of those habits like writing in a journal or making your bed or exercise where I think it just improved other other habits. I, I think it's more important that that you can do that consistently and well than you stick to any sort of particular cadence. Yeah. I mean, I do the podcast and the newsletter each week. And if I did it monthly, there's a cadence, isn't there? Right. And it's like each week you just have to do it. You can't. It's like, you know, if it was once a month, I don't know. I just. To me, it's just like make your bed, right? Just do it. But someone who doesn't have enough to say on a weekly basis, you know, and would write a weekly, uh, a week, weekly, I mean, a good name, we, the weekly newsletter, <laughs> W-A-K-L-Y, you know, I'd say write a stronger bi-weekly one or uh, a bi-monthly one or monthly one. Where does your inspiration come from for the week then? How do you, how do you decide? So going back to my, like ideas have never been a problem in my life. My brain spins like crazy. And, and in fact, I probably have a list of 70 themes that I'll note down. I mean, now I look for it and people make jokes to me about, are they going to be in Friday Forward this week and or sales pitches? But I don't often go to those or something happens in current events that I can tie it to a theme, like where I was thinking about the theme. The, the, the magic formula clearly has been to tie a current event theme to, it's kind of like a sermon formula, kind of a, a current event theme to a philosophical discussion, right? Um, that seems to work. So a lot of times it's just come together where I, you know, I had a, a this notion of like a measure, uh, measure twice and cut once. And then there are a couple things that have happened recently, like some corporate emails where the company just spent or an ounce of prevent, like twice as much work cleaning up the mess than doing it right the first time, right? So I might, I'll, I'll see one of those posts and then it will make, encourage me to sit down and, and do that. Like Sonos uh, is an example of that, like the speaker company. They, they said they were going to sunset all their old products and just a mess happened. And then the CEO wrote this whole email, all this stuff where they could have probably like kind of figured out or pre-tested that before they, you know, rolled it out to all their customers and not have to walk back, you know, a lot of what they said two days later. Well, it's just one of those things where you just think, did you even need to tell anybody this bad news? You could have just once every now and again, you sunset a product. You could have said internally it was four years, but you just made it a thing by telling everybody. Like beforehand, they weren't bothered. Now you've made everybody bothered. Yeah, and announcing something that you're taking away from people is is never going to have a positive response. So like a, a focus group would probably be good about that. Or, or, or as I always say, there's two ways to, to do things, right? You can like, you can, if you're an airline, you can say, hey, there's a $10 surcharge for calling our customer service reps to book your ticket, or there's a $10 discount for booking online, right? They're both the same thing, but but they're very different ways of positioning it in terms of making people angry or not angry. So there probably is a similar way of talking about, hey, our, our newer stuff, we've got all this new stuff coming out and you know it needs new horsepower. And so the newest upgrades are all going to go to the new stuff, right? I mean, that that's something I could... I can understand. Well, you just say we guarantee to give updates for the first 48 months. Yeah. Right. And it's like, it's a yes, not a no every time. So how did you, because you used to have, you've now got two podcasts. 
Yeah. We, so I started a pod, we started a podcast in the organization called Outperform, and it was about sort of performance and we're in the performance marketing space. But we decided to put a different twist on it because not talk marketing all the time, like talk about performance at a higher level and bring on really interesting performance experts. And that sort of took a life uh, of its own. And we decided and, and then so we didn't have these marketing episodes, but then we'd be talking to sort of world class performance experts. And we just decided, and particularly when I was coming out with the book, that it, it, it was sort of a fork and we decided to spit it off. So we kept the marketing one and, and went deeper on sort of nuances of marketing performance. And I and I spun that off and, and, and pulled all the episodes that really were from authors and other people around uh, in, into Elevate. And both have actually now continued to, to grow, but in, in different directions and with different focuses. Is that how the book came about that you were, that you had that sort of performance and then elevate was an output of that it just all worked out so so i knew the book was coming out i knew it was going to be called elevate and and capacity building was just the theme that i was going to talk about a lot more so we decided to keep the name outperform uh as as the acceleration partners marketing podcast and it just seemed like you know i had friday ford i had my personal brand we were trying to just have fewer things so i now have even though it's friday ford i have this elevate column on on linkedin which is the top newsletter in the world on linkedin and the elevate podcast and the elevate book so it just it, it just makes fewer different things out there and so yes because linkedin have done some bespoke coding for you around your newsletter haven't you so you can sign up you can subscribe to your newsletter on linkedin they, they, they didn't do it for me I, I was one of the people in the so linkedin's um really pushing this this sort of newsletter concept or you know subscribing to content uh things and i was actually just one of the early people in that and had a lot of interest in the writing so the, they eventually will roll that out wider but yeah that's a big focus for them is the uh, it was called series and now it's called newsletter but yeah you can subscribe to receive uh, articles from someone that you follow very good and do you is there a do you get more signups there or do you get more signups on the in terms of volume of new subscribers is it uh, I've had more more on LinkedIn, um, although I, I, I typically do two articles a week there. One is the Friday Forward, and then the other is another sort of culture or, or, or leadership post. Friday Forward uh, is shared in a bunch of different ways beyond the direct emails. Like I, someone will take that email and forward it to their company or put it in their Slack channel. So I don't get as much direct feedback of all the places that it's going there versus, you know, the newsletter number is, is, is more direct, but the, yeah, the newsletter has been, been growing some weeks by five or 10,000 a week. And what's been the impact of Elevate the book? I hope, I mean, I hope the biggest impact has been on, on other people. And, and, and I would say like, there's nothing new and I don't mean to, you know, but I think the book has nothing fundamentally new in the universe. I, I, I think what I'm, good at is, is pulling together a framework that makes something accessible to people in order to be able to replicate it personally or professionally. And what I have heard is in the way that I have pulled those concepts together is not how someone has seen it done before to understand, you know, what capacity is and how they can, can use it and, and, and tap into it. So um, yeah, I've, I've been doing a lot more speaking. I've had some uh, interesting opportunities, but for me, the definition of of success was always, you know, impact. You know, if people are reading it, if they're enjoying it, if they're making improvements personally in their organization based on it, then then I'm happy. And what's uh, what's one or two of the key concepts in there that uh, we could share with people? 
I start with this notion of of spiritual capacity as sort of the beginning, and and it's not religious because I, I I'm that's not something that I just struggled with a term there, but it's really about figuring out what you want most, what your core values are, being able to articulate those. We all have them. And understanding like what you do well, what you want, what are non-negotiable, because to me, that's the beginning of everything. And then going to figure out how you're going to get it and how you're going to perform at, at a high level. So I talk a lot. We, we actually help leaders at our company try to try to figure out their own core values so that they can articulate it with their teams. And, I, and there's some framework in there and some exercises to get people started on that at the op opposite end, which is emotional capacity, just at a high level. Spiritual is what you want. Intellectual is how you sort of get better and improve your operating system, ideally in service of what you want most. Physical, which I think we understand is, which is probably the biggest accelerant or drag on the other capacities is like taking care of our health and our stress and our energy level. And, you know, it just makes us be able to do the other things well or not well. Emotional is really how you relate to things you don't control, other people, the quality of your relationships, the first three are really about you. And then the others is like, you're out in the world and how do you play well with others? And I, and I think a lot of us waste a lot of emotional capacity on things that we can't control and people we can't control. And I mean, my biggest example is, you know, if you and I get into a disagreement at, at, at 9.05 in the morning, uh, and, and I'll make you the enlightened one here, and then at 9 and 10, you're back to work and finish your day and get everything done. And I you know, I'm walking around for five hours being like bleeping Dominic. And I can't believe like I, I, you know, we only, this is the whole thing. We have the same hours in the day, right? And we experienced the same event, but, but the way you handled it based on either your experience or otherwise is like, you didn't let it destroy the next 10 hours of your day. And I just couldn't, I spend the next eight hours, you know, reliving those five minutes um, in my life. Like to me, that's a fundamental difference in emotional capacity. And it's a huge explainer of why some people are higher achievers than others how much of that do you think is learned or learnable versus i don't know genetic or pre-programmed by our early life all these things go hand in hand when you know what you want and you're healthier so i'd argue like if my physical capacity is low someone asked me this on a webinar this week and i said look if you're if you've slept four hours last night and you're cranky like don't interact with people that day, right? It's all you're going to piss off everyone, right? So some of that's a self awareness that like, my, my energy is low here. So like, I need to pull out of this. But I actually think these things are much more learnable and trainable if we want to if we're open to self improvement than we believe we understand physical capacity, like, I'm getting my running up again for the spring, I, I ran three kilometers, you know, a week ago for the first time, and I thought I was gonna die, you know, and then then it, and then the next day I ran 3.2 kilometers and it was better. And today I ran 3.5 and like my heart rate was down eight points. And I'd same thing with weight. So if I do that over and over again, I will see the improvement. I really believe that that is true. Like I don't, in, in terms of our spiritual capacity, our intellectual, our emotional, I think it's the same. I think we believe we have it or we don't have it. Like I'm a runner or I'm not a runner. But like last week I couldn't breathe running 5K. In two weeks, like my heart rate will be 15 points lower running 5K as I, as I build that up. So I, I actually think these things are much more, we have much more control uh, than we believe. I think part of when we, you know, say that we don't, that's just an excuse to, to not have to try. Two things sprung to mind. One is there are some people who have low emotional intelligence. So we might have had that fight at 9.05. And the reason one person isn't bothered is because it just, they had no idea they'd pissed, they'd pissed somebody off. Right. And I remember, you know, I spent a lot of my time working in the US 
And uh, I read a fantastic, to your point about awareness, I read a fantastic article that said sleep deprivation is like alcohol, that it has, it, you know, it can lower your inhibitions. And I would always find myself at sort of four o'clock in the afternoon when I was over in the West Coast, four o'clock in, I'd pick a fight with somebody. Yeah. <laughs> like out of nowhere, I'd get punchy. And it's just that, you know, it would get to the point uh, with the last organization, Pier One, where is that people would look at four o'clock and say, Dom, it's time for a fight. Come on. You haven't had a fight with anybody. And uh, it's that once you've got that awareness, then um, then you can manage it. Yeah. And and. To me, it touches all of them, right? So if if I, I spiritual capacity, like I don't pay, I don't think about what's most important. I lose the big picture. You know, if I'm tired and stressed, I, I'm not going to do well at learning. I'm not going to do well at relationships. So you know that that is one that really that impacts us, and and all of these things I think are interrelated and require understanding where we are just off at certain times. I, I, I just said this to someone this morning. One of my favorite quotes is, if you've ever heard this one, and I'll, I'll make it PG-13, although I don't know if you have that rating in, 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 in the UK. <laughs> you know, if, if you meet an a-hole at nine o'clock in the morning, they might be an a-hole. If you meet a-holes all day, you're probably <laughs> Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, and do you, and you were talking earlier about the, you'd been on this leadership course and you started to think about your morning routine. Do you, do you do, do you do yoga? Do you meditate? Do you journal? Uh, I try to incorporate a lot of uh, Hal Elrod's book, The Miracle Morning, which is sold like a million copies worldwide, great program. And he just looked at what all the top performers did and then took all six of them and said, you might as well do, do a little bit. So I, the one thing I do is I try to create some space when I get up in the morning, uh, think, read, write, plan out the most important things for the day, scan my goals again for the quarter and even the year, make sure I'm calibrated. Um, I've been using Headspace and meditate, but try to just have that half hour. And then and then I might exercise uh, maybe a little later in the morning or do something just to get the blood moving, you know, even like 10 or 15 jumping jacks, like pretty quickly. But I think it's this offense, playing offense. I've also, I've front loaded my weeks and my days to always focus on, so, so I have no meeting Monday where I have no scheduled meetings so that I walk into Monday and I can knock a lot of stuff off my to-do list for the week. Most of our team leadership team is synchronized. We know we're cognitively better in the morning. So we don't have meetings from 8 till 11, 30 in the morning. That allows me to wake up, set my intention, say, here are the three most important things I get done that day. Do them first. And then when meetings and calls and all this stuff starts kind of taking me off the rails in the afternoon, like at least those three things are done. And to me, the... The three things towards the quarterly goals times 90 days, you know, it all starts to add up towards shipping away towards whatever I said was the most important. I, you, you might not notice an hour a day redirected away from what's most important, but you'll notice the absence of 90 hours, you know, at the end of a, a quarter. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I saw something recently where Jeff Bezos said he makes no decisions in the afternoon. Yeah, the, Dan Pink wrote this book, When. It's a great book on the science of, of timing. And he said, you know, he talks about this hospital. Would you, would you go to this hospital that has three times the error rates and this happens and this happens? And basically, it was, an, it was an, not a real hospital. It was an amalgamation of all surgeries done between 1 and 3.30, which is kind of like the trough of the day when people are kind of tired and post-lethargic. What's interesting is that I think what you're cognitively better for sort of reading and writing and decisions in the morning for most people, unless they're a, you know, a night owl, there's some the data that like 
for creative stuff or meetings or brainstorming, like it's actually maybe better and okay to be a little bit worn down. So it actually just works better to have those types of things in the afternoon. Yeah. Very good. What have you got any other things you do in terms of structuring the time at work? Maybe for the uh, company stuff? Do you, I mean, you do monthly, weekly, what sort of other stuff have you got in terms of rhythms? Yeah, we have cadences. Uh, we follow sort of the traction meeting thing. So we have our integrated L10. We then have roll down meetings. We have a biweekly uh, all company meeting. We try to like, and again, we're coming out of those meetings saying, is this a nine or a 10? And we've said to everyone, if, if you're not asking that question and it's not, don't have it, right? If you're all saying it's a seven, then then don't have the meeting. I'm a big believer in time blocking. You know, so my when someone says, "Hey, can you chat tomorrow?" like the answer is usually no, unless it's a crisis, because I've I've blocked out the stuff that I want to do pretty far in advance. So that includes the personal stuff I want to do, working out or otherwise. Like I, I treat all of those things as kind of unmovable. I don't I don't really have free time in my calendar. I have time that's allocated towards certain priorities, personally, professionally. Is there a thing you know now that uh, you can think back in time and go, it would have been fun or nice or if I wish I'd known that then? You can't make everyone happy. You know, it is far better to be authentic and consistent and piss some people off in that who don't agree than to try to uh, make everyone happy. So I, I think I've gotten much more comfortable with that. I think I struggled having being really like resolute about certain convictions, but also being a people pleaser and not wanting to upset people. Uh, and then I realized like, I'm just not going to make some people happy. And those are the people that need to exit my personal or professional, you know, life. And and, and what I hope is like, look, I, I, I think it's, I think it's worse to say one thing and do another than for someone to say, look, I appreciate this perspective. I, this, this is just not for me. And, and I want to do it. So I, I think we also like we would over we're an organization that's very focused on feedback. And I think sometimes we overreacted to the feedback of one. And, and, and I'm very cautious going through feedback now on, you know, is it is this a pattern or is this someone who, you know, is frustrated around something who probably shouldn't even be at our company because they're frustrated about something about who we fundamentally are? Yes. Or they've realized I mean, I, I do that with clients often where they set they reaffirm their core values. And then some of their employees realize, yeah, yeah, some of their employees realize they're in the wrong, they're in the wrong building, which is a, which is a good outcome to me. Or they, you know, they come and say that. But I, I, I think um, we actually have the problem because of our Excel and Improve. I think we sometimes we pay too much attention to feedback. I, I, I don't mean this in a like I'm just too smart, you know, way. But I think because we collect a lot of feedback, most organizations don't. Someone will write, you know, the one out of seventy person, one hundred seventy, writes some you know, thing. And, and I think it would be a mistake to change what the 169 love for, you know, what the 170th doesn't like. Yeah. Yeah. And it, though that must get harder as you get bigger. Yeah, it gets hard. And, and that's part of the process. Like, and I, and I te- like read and, and listen to the most brutal thing that someone is willing to say about you or your organization and, and, and absorb it, but then decide, how you want to react or if that's important to you or, or, or otherwise. And that, well, and that's why it's really important to have a really clear idea of where you're going and why. Yeah. Cause then you could say like their feedback might be absolutely genuine and true and factually correct. But actually if we, if we go that way, we're, we're going off course. 
Yeah, I've said I've said that to people. You know, people always want higher compensation. You know, we're open book. One of the feedbacks we had, someone said, I went on these websites and I can make 30% more and all this stuff. I said, I, I don't know who it was, but I said the company like any of you can make 20 or 30% more if that's the primary thing that you're focused on. I can't guarantee you that that company will be in business for six months, you know, or that they'll tell you the truth or or otherwise. But if that's your number one focus, then you probably should go do that elsewhere because uh, you know our margins. And if we paid everyone 30% more, we'd be out of business within 60 days. So, you know, we've been going for 13 years. We're best place to work. We believe in a lot of these things. Um, we also believe in being profitable and, and self-security. Uh, you know, we're not venture-backed and blowing through um, a ton of money. So I, I I think hearing the feedback sometimes and then actually saying, I hear you on this, but here's what we're willing to do and here's what we're not not willing to do. I'd say to that person, sounds like you should go take that job. And are you, when you say open book, you mean on in terms of your management accounts or you mean in terms of salaries? Yeah, into management accounts. So on a P&L basis, we're fully transparent down to profit and we have a dashboard that we report to everyone where we are. What I said on salaries, I, I, I think there's some timing issues when people come in. There's people like information wants to be free this day. And I understand that some companies are fully you know, open on that. I, I think it's a little messy. But what I have said to everyone is that if someone hacked into our database and exposed all of our salaries, nothing would really surprise everyone. You know, People at the same level doing the same job are paid the same amount. We have bands. Our, our, our head of culture takes it very serious. I don't think my salary would blow anyone away because it's built into the PL and all this stuff. So I, you know, I, I feel like we 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 operate it. You shouldn't operate as if I always say the Sunday paper test. Like if the Sunday paper would make you totally embarrassed about it, then you probably shouldn't do it. So I, I feel pretty comfortable sharing a list of all our salaries. I I I just think it's a little messy having totally open you know, salaries, like, I mean, like you're due for a promotion in, in a month and you don't know that yet. Right. And you're at 50 and the other person's at 51. And so you get all pissed about it, but you don't know you're about to go to, like, there's just some timing issues and stuff like that, that I think make it a little, uh, I know some companies are doing it, but I, I, I think it's better to have integrity around your compensation than to have a public compensation chart. Okay. Other than elevate, which people should, uh, you know, subscribe to the podcast and uh, get the book. But along the way, what what other books have you read that have impacted on, you know, your personal journey, the business, the culture, or maybe even other podcasts that you listen to? On a podcast side, uh, two of my favorites are How I Built This. Like, I love hearing the stories. Obviously, I think it's one of the top podcasts. And, and I love uh, Tim Ferriss and some of the long format interviews he does with world-class, you know, leaders. You, you you could listen to that two hours and you get like all the best of the five books they've written, you know, whether it's uh, Jim Collins, like he did a two hour one. I mean, there's just some great, great ones that I, I feel like you get all the best persons thinking on the book side. The book I always say that one of the best books I've ever read helpful is a book called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. And it, it's actually <laughs> like the definitive book on explaining cognitive dissonance. And I think cognitive dissonance is one of the most powerful forces in our personal and professional lives. And our ability to to see it and be aware of it and understand it at play, I think, is a huge, huge advantage. I know that's a fantastic book. I was laughing because I bought it for my wife. Oh, you did? Uh, and yeah, she wasn't she wasn't amused right. at all. You, you failed the <laughs> test of the book if you gave that uh, as a gift. And, and you know, I talk about this with our team too. I think sometimes I'm noticing this now in that uh, again, we're very transparent, but like 
look, there have been some things that have happened or some integrity issues, you know, over the years where we've had to, you know, take action. And if they talk to the person, you know, after that, the person would say, you know, it was just a misunderstanding. And the people, oh my God, they overreacted to a misunderstanding. I'm like, that person is telling themselves that story to, to make themselves feel better, but it's not a misunderstanding. Like I, if I showed you all the information behind it, it's, it's not at all, right? It was flagged by multiple people, it was brought to us as a concern. So this is, this is always a risk, I think. And this is where a lot of water cooler stuff is, which is, oh, well, what happened? Well, you know, I, I was just a little mistake and everyone overreacted. And, you know, that, that might be a story that that person has created to protect themselves from not wanting to own up to, to what happened. It's a sort of a fantastic human trait that we can hold two diametrically opposed ideas in our heads at the same time and not go mad. But but at the same time, it, it does allow you to absolve yourself of of, uh, of offenses against other people. Yeah, I mean, the, the big example in that book was in the US when, when, when they came out with DNA testing and they started, uh, you know, exonerating criminals, you know, saying that were convicted, you know, for for life, saying it wasn't them. The prosecutors all came out of retirement to double down and try to prove that these people were guilty because, you know, they, they were like, I wouldn't have put an innocent person in jail. Therefore, the person has to be, you know, guilty. I mean, that is just the classic definition rather than being like, I'm a great person, but I made a mistake, right, in this case. Yeah. Any other books? I'm reading Essentialism these days, which I think is particularly relevant, you know, maybe in our in the coronavirus world in our time on uh, by Greg McEwen sort of on on I think we do a lot of stuff that's actually unnecessary and probably outside the 80 the 20 rule. So that's one of the things our, our leadership team is reading this quarter. You do that sort of leadership team quarterly book club? Yeah, we do a quarter, quarterly book club. Atomic Habits is another great one for people who haven't read it. We did that one last year. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Rob, that's been absolutely brilliant. It's been fantastic to chat to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Glad, glad we made it work. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it would be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast, and there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.